Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Law a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jane Richards, and today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Dr. Linda Steele. Dr. Linda Steele is a socio-legal researcher working at the intersections of disability law and social justice at the University of Technology, Sydney. She's been researching disability law and social issues for over a decade, and now she was previously a solicitor with the Intellectual Disability Rights Service. Dr. Steele teaches civil court procedure law and mental health and disability law. Today, I'm speaking with her about her book, Disability, Criminal Justice and Law, Reconsidering Court Diversion, and it was published by Routledge in 2020. Dr. Linda Steele, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me, Jane. It's my pleasure. Now, just to get us started, I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about yourself and how you came to write Disability, Criminal Justice and Law, Reconsidering Court Diversion. Yeah, sure. So I began my legal career as a lawyer at a community legal centre for people with intellectual disability. And a big part of that work involved representing clients with intellectual disability uh, in local court matters, so um, low-level criminal uh, justice matters. Uh, And the main option we had available to us, you, you would know that lawyers have available to them a very limited set of tools when they're advocating for people in the criminal courts. Uh, And one option that we had available to us when representing clients with disability was court diversion. Uh, And this was um, a way in which an individual could not be convicted of their charges, uh, wasn't sentenced, wasn't um, punished in terms of going to prison or a fine on the condition that they engaged with disability or mental health services for a period of time. And that was seen as being the ideal option for our clients because it uh, usually gave them access to services they didn't have before and also uh, prevented them going into prison or prolonging their their court matter. Um, But the clients that I was representing, uh, they had disability diagnoses, but they also had uh, a range of other circumstances um, that they were encountering, such as uh, homelessness, drug use, Um, they might have had uh, histories of being in out-of-home care as children, they might have been socially isolated, 
Uh, and also they had experienced throughout their lives um, poverty and kind of the failure of, of government and service providers to really support them. Uh, some of them might even have experienced violence and abuse at the hands of um, service providers or in out-of-home care or in prisons. So um, I guess what I was really struggling with in that, in that um, legal centre role was how could I reconcile a, um, my work as a lawyer in supporting my clients to um, have their criminal charges resolved in some way that was quick and provided um, a positive outcome at the same time as all of these other circumstances really didn't fit within, um, fit within the box of what diversion could do. And so that led me to uh, do a PhD on the topic of diversion, which then later became this book that we're discussing today. And, and in, that, in that project, I was really wanting to kind of unpack some of the assumptions around court diversion, around it being humane and beneficial, the ideal option, and also really question um, how can we shift from thinking about court diversion in a narrow legal justice sense to thinking about court diversion in a broader sense of social justice um, in terms of people's broader lives um, experienced through um, poverty, state violence and um, government irresponsibility. Now, just stepping back a little bit, um, for our listeners, by way of context, can you describe some of your key concerns in the book? Um, for example, what is court diversion and how does it apply to disabled people? Yeah, so court diversion is a legal process where judges can make uh, orders moving a disabled person who's appearing before them on criminal charges, usually low-level um, criminal charges, to move them uh, into treatment and support, so mental health services in the community, uh, inpatient mental health treatment or disability services. So to move them into those services instead of convicting them and sentencing them to some form of punishment instead. And it kind of originated in England in the 1960s when there used to be a mechanism there called hospital orders that would allow people um, with mental health diagnoses appearing before the criminal courts to be moved into a hospital setting instead of being convicted. Um, but more recently, we see uh, in the 1990s, the development of mental health courts in the US as well. So there's two kind of uh, forms of court diversion. There's the power of judges across all criminal courts to make orders diverting individuals into services, which we see in England in particular, uh, New Zealand and some states in Australia. And then the mental health court model where there are specific courthouses and that might have court lists or a specific courtroom um, that's set up with the allocated judge who has expertise in um, disability and mental health um, to um, consider clients uh, for diversion and then we'll see through that individual during the um, process of them receiving their treatment or services through to the end of that, that order. Um, and so, uh, so in terms of how it applies to people with disability, um, it is basically a, um, a way in which individuals can um, end up with an outcome where they, they aren't convicted of a criminal offence and then they're not sentenced and, and punished. 
but that engagement with disability services or um, mental health services, which is the alternative um, outcome, it is subject to conditions such that if the individual does not see through that treatment or service engagement, they generally can be brought back to court and have their criminal charges heard. Now, I just want to go back. One of the points that you mentioned about your research in unpacking these assumptions about court diversion being humane, humane and beneficial um, was this sense of social justice um, and whether or not it is achieving social justice. So can you tell me about this element of justice and social justice in the process? Yeah, so um, court diversion is premised on the assumption that people with disability have um, a disability within a kind of medical model framework. So the idea that disability is an individual medicalised condition within specific individuals that can um, be managed or um, addressed in some way through disability or mental health services. So it's a very um, uh, individualised and apolitical approach to understanding disability. So within that context, when people with disability uh, come before the courts in relation to court diversion, the understanding is that what is going to, um, that, that it's more appropriate that they receive disability and mental health related treatment and supports because the cause of their offending is somehow related to that disability uh, rather than um, it being the offending, alleged offending being related to some kind of um, conscious thought process or, or um, uh, intentional behaviour on the part of the individual that we see kind of underlying the typical assumptions of criminal responsibility. Um, and secondly, it's it's based on, court diversion is based on the assumption then that um, the reason why people with disability do offend is that they haven't had access to the services that they you know, necessarily and purportedly necessarily need to get through life and that therefore court diversion can provide this opening into those services which is just assumed to be beneficial to them. Um, and so the justice of court diversion then is this idea of connecting individuals up to the services that they're assumed to need. Um, and, and I guess what kind of sits outside the frame then or, or outside of our view are... Um, is what might become apparent if we shifted from looking at disability as a um, medical model approach, as a medical condition, to seeing disability as a politicised um, aspect of identity in the same way that we see um, gender, sexuality, race, indigeneity, et cetera. So if we shift to see disability as uh, politicised and um, as being about power, um, then what we... Um, then what becomes apparent um, uh, are some questions around, well, why are, um, why are people with disability, if they do need access to services, why does that have to come at the cost of being subject to um, a criminal court order? Um, why do they have to comply with those services um, under the assumption that if they fail to do so, they'll be brought back to court? Or, um, you know, why are we just assuming that the individual needs to be fixed? Why aren't we instead looking at the broader circumstances that led someone into criminalisation or the circumstances around um, a, um, you know, kind of structural 
circumstances that mean that individuals with disability have not um, had many options in terms of employment or where they live or um, social connections. So, um, and those kind of questions really are about thinking about court diversion in the context of social justice as opposed to a narrowly kind of um, individualised understanding of justice that, that um, focuses on disability as a medical issue that can only be addressed and treated through interventions, coercive interventions in the individual. That was really, um, I think that's a really interesting point and that really came through. So I think the sort of two key takeaways that I get from that is there's this shift from medical, your, um, there's a shift sort of from the medical model of disability, but in, we also need to consider how disability is politicised and also that it's about power and, you know, this is challenged to uh, structural oppressions um, or there needs to be a challenge to structural oppression um, with regards to how we think about disability. So this really it leads into my next question and it's sort of you frame the book. Um, I'm just going to quote um, from the book where you write that the book, uh, the central contention is that we need to reject the view that court diversion is a humane use of law, specifically for disabled people who are in the criminal justice system. Instead, we must approach court diversion as part of a much bigger systemic problem with the law that we need to resist. The inclusion in a legal doctrine and legal process of disability as a lawful and legitimate basis on which to circumvent equality for disabled people in the criminal justice system and to drastically shift the thresholds of permissible control, violence and injustice. Now you go on to argue that through the exercise of court diversion, legal doctrine and legal process are complicit in debilitating disabled people in the criminal justice system. I felt this really neatly summarised some really complex ideas um, and the research in your book. Um, I'm interested then to know in your challenge to this rather widely held assumption that court diversion is a humane solution as to what to do with disabled people who come into contact with the criminal justice system. Are you saying in your argument that diversion is not necessarily a humane response? Yeah, thanks. That's a really good question and, um, and I'll have to unpack it. So I think that the assumptions that we have about what is humane in relation to people with disability are premised on a medicalised understanding of disability, where disability is a problem, it's something that um, needs to be obliterated or in some way um, managed or its, its impacts on other people are um, managed in some way. So often what's considered humane in general in relation to people with disability um, is what would be considered violent in relation to non-disabled people. By that I mean that um, it's... It's widely assumed that um, taking a paternalistic approach to people with disability, um, that, you know, we know best that um, this treatment or um, living in this place or um, working in this job where um, you're paid drastically under the minimum wage or whatever, that, that, we, that these decisions that we want to make for you are going to be in your best interests and in the best interests of society. So often what we consider as humane in terms of people with disability is actually, I would say, actually violent. And I'm drawing there on the work of Chris Chapman and AJ Withers that talk about the um, violence of benevolence, that, that um, 
that actually helping or saving people with disability, which we um, associate as being the humane and nice way to treat people with disability, is often driven by um, much uh, more problematic and, and darker um, assumptions about people with disability and, and the kind of limited view we have of what they can possibly achieve or what their lives are worth. So if we bring that into the context of diversion, diversion is considered to be humane because it links, it links people up with disability and mental health services, but more specifically what it does is it coercively requires people with disability to engage in mental health treatment or to engage with disability services. And, and what that actually means uh, is, for example, to um, be subject to a community treatment order where um, a mental health review tribunal or um, a treating professional is deciding what mental health treatment you should have. Um, it could be that um, related to the diversion order, a guardianship order is made where a third, a third party is then making decisions on, on the individual's behalf, such as deciding where that person lives, um, uh, who they can socialise with, uh, and in some instances, even uh, that guardianship order can, um, can agree to restrictive practices being used in relation to an individual. And restrictive practices are things such as locking someone in their bedroom or um, uh, restraining, physically restraining them to um, a chair or um, in relation to females with um, intellectual disability, it could be use of menstrual suppression if that's considered to impact, and menstruation is considered to impact on their behaviour in some way. So, um, and even calling the police if an individual subject to restrictive practices um, leaves their home and doesn't return. So there's all these ways in which um, what might at first seem quite kind and beneficial in terms of, you know, just giving people access to services they need are actually underpinned by coercion and, and a lack of consent on the part of people with disability in terms of um, those interventions in their lives and bodies. And I would see that as being you know, a form of violence to those individuals. But that, that violence is masked by the overwhelming assumption we have in society about what is best for people with disability um, and the way in which our legal systems um, prop up those assumptions about um, the non-violence or the humaneness of these kind of coercive interventions because we have uh, entire, uh, well, we have a segregated justice system where we have um, entire pieces of legislation, tribunals, court jurisdictions, such as the parents' patrie jurisdiction of the court. We have mental health legislation, mental health tribunals, guardianship legislation and guardianship tribunals, all of which um, authorise these kinds of interventions to be used in relation to people with disability uh, and used, and sorry, authorised pursuant to the application of law and pursuant to um, court and tribunal procedures. So pursuant to a process of justice, which we would associate as well as, as um, supporting the idea that these processes are actually humane because they've been done through a fair and um, purportedly transparent process. And now this relates to my next question. You've um, sort of identified it already uh, in what you just spoke about. So you identify in the book the systemic problem with the law that we need to resist. 
and I think you've just alluded to this. Can you explain more what this systemic problem is and the modes of resistance with regards to people with disabilities in this context? Yeah, so um, people with disability across society are subject to discrimination, violence, and um, a lot of an institutionalization. And a lot of this is um, enabled because of the segregated uh, residential, employment, health, education systems that we have in society. So there's, there's ways in which we have a kind of um, two-track system in which people with disability are put within these structural conditions that then enable them to be treated in ways that are different to other people. And I think that as a society and maybe as legal scholars, we're, we're probably quite alert to, for example, the problems of um, segregated education or I mean, we hear a lot these days about the problems with group homes um, or about um, what is commonly referred to as sheltered workshops where people with disability are paid um, below the minimum wage. But another way in which this segregation occurs is actually through law. So we might typically assume that law is there to empower people and to um, be there ready whenever there's an injustice that's been done to individuals or to respond to violence to some way improve people's lives. But the justice system, as I mentioned earlier, um, is segregated as well. And there are these separate um, legislative systems and um, court jurisdictions that only apply to people with disability. And they have their um, kind of basis in the way in which the liberal legal individual is constructed as being capable, uh, rational. So ideas of autonomy um, that kind of underpin the way in which law applies to non-disabled people um, is premised on a um, understanding of people with disability as incapable, as lacking that capacity to be free agents and autonomous. And so um, that then provides um, a basis on which to um, enable other people to be authorised to make decisions about them or enable judges or tribunal members to make decisions about their lives. And so I guess for me, the systemic problem that court diversion really highlights uh, is this issue of segregation that um, in, our, in our justice systems. Here, the in the terms of um, court diversion, the segregation um, relates to the way in which um, disabled individuals appearing before the court on criminal charges can be subject to coercion um, or violence, I would say, when they are not convicted um, as compared to other people where um, if they are not convicted of a criminal offence, then there's no way in which uh, they can continue to be subject to coercion, such as, you know, complying with certain conditions or um, being subject to some kind of confinement or um, forced treatment, et cetera. But when someone has a disability, um, the law kind of channels that individual into a separate uh, legislative space where that then becomes possible. And that's a problem with court diversion, but I would propose that it's also a problem in um, non-criminal contexts with guardianship law and mental health law. Um, and I would see that as, as being a form of disability, uh, lawful violence. So it's, it's a form of violence that's um, 
it's non-consensual on the part of the individual. So it, it is a form of violence against that individual, even though someone else is consenting. Um, and it's lawful violence because the law is enabling it to occur. And it's very deep rooted in the justice system. It's not simply, um, you know, a bit of legislation that's kind of tacked onto the existing legal system. It's premised on these ideas of capacity and rationality that are, you know, fundamental to um, the way in which the law operates in, um, in, in terms of criminal law and civil law, in terms of criminal responsibility and ideas of um, accountability and obligation in civil law um, that are central to um, that in relation to non-disabled people. So, um, yeah, it's a very deeply embedded problem and one that I think goes throughout the justice system and law. It's not just in court diversion. So would you then say that the exercise of court diversion, legal doctrine and legal processes are actually complicit in debilitating disabled people in the criminal justice system and also outside of it? Yes, yeah. So, um, yeah, so I guess the, I, would, I would say that um, court diversion is one way in which this kind of segregation and ableism within law and the justice system contributes to the um, structural violence or oppression of um, disabled people. And so it's playing out on an individual level with um, uh, particular individuals that are diverted, but it's also contributing to this idea of debility. So the idea that particular um, communities of disabled people or groups of disabled people um, are, are throughout their lives subject to ongoing precarity and so court diversion contributes to criminalised disabled people being subject to greater precarity or, or, or subject to kind of um, poorer circumstances in their lives than, than other, other people in terms of, you know, the possibilities for them flourishing and having a good life. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code POD. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. 
And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. And so I think this is a good point to pick up on this um, idea about um, intersectional oppression of people with disabilities. Um, and you write a lot about this and you mentioned it um, earlier. For example, that um, some of the discrimination and disadvantage that um, these people who are subject to, you know, precarious living standards um, and lesser, less good standards of living um, throughout their lives are the result of things like violence, homelessness, gender, colon- gender colonialism, as well as disability. Um, and so this is a structural issue of political and social justice. In this context of um, intersectional disadvantage, can you talk about um, what oppression means? Yeah, so I, I would see oppression as um, being about violence and violence not only in the interpersonal sense, so not in that kind of um, uh, material um, um, not only in the sense of um, the direct application of force from one individual to another, but in a broader sense, seeing violence as the um, exercise and abuse of, of power um, um, against disabled people. So by that, I mean the idea of um, disability. So the idea of um, people, certain groups of people with disability um being subject to circumstances across their life that gradually um, wear down their health and their standards of living and the life possibilities for them. Um, And also see um, oppression as being about um, epistemic violence as well. So the way in which um, law, uh, medical discipline, and uh, other aspects of um, society um, can impose certain, uh, are vested with the authority to impose their views on what it means to have a disability and and what it means for people with disability to experience the world. And people with disability themselves are denied that uh, capacity to speak for themselves and to articulate what they want to have um, happen in their lives and with their bodies and if we bring it back to law we can see this idea of um, epistemic violence as a form of oppression playing out when um, legislation or cases um, define disability in certain ways particularly diagnostic or medicalized ways and when law um, takes away the capacity for people with disability to have their decisions and choices recognized and appoints um, guardians or um, uh, makes a mental health order that detains an individual um, and in a mental health facility and then empowers doctors to make those treatment decisions instead of the individual. So epistemic violence is a really significant aspect of oppression. Um, and also related to that, the idea of ontological violence as a form of oppression where um, the kind of cultural understandings, uh, predominant cultural understandings of 
disability in society um, uh, reflect that medical model idea of disability as um, a negative attribute, as something that must be managed or obliterated. And those cultural ideas of disability um, suggest that the only valid way in which people with disability can be in the world is if they aren't disabled. So it um, basically contributes to the dehumanisation of people with disability um, and contributes to the idea that um, people with disability, uh, their lives are worthless by reason of their disability. And again, we see this reflected um, in law when um, people with disability have less um, access to legal remedies when they experience violence or um, are not recognised as full citizens as well in terms of voting or um, having standing to um, bring matters to court, etc. So, so I guess oppression and violence is, um, it does have that material physical aspect in terms of segregation, restriction, um, interpersonal violence, but it's, it's kind of permeates the um, cultural understandings we have about disability and also permeates um, issues of who has the authority to know disability and to make decisions about people with disability. Um, and before we move on to the substantive other parts of the book, I just want to pick up on one more of the key themes that emerge um, and it relates to colonial oppression um, and it sort of relates to the points you've just been making. So one of the things you write is that disability and mental health law is implicated in ongoing settler colonialism. This becomes especially apparent in your analysis where you write about Indigenous and First Nations people who come into contact with the criminal justice system in Australia. Can you talk about the role of court diversion and criminality in sustaining colonial oppression? Yeah, so, so I guess in speaking from the Australian context, um, we're a settler, considered to be a settler colony in, in the sense that um, while there was in, uh, an invasion of Australia, um, the impacts of that and that um, illegitimate uh, occupation and authority over um, First Nations people is continuing. So colonial, settler colonialism is seen as an ongoing social structure which involves the um, ongoing occupation and exploitation of land, um, of Indigenous and First Nations people's land, uh, and the dispossession, displacement and elimination of Indigenous and First Nations people. So um, in the way in which we see this idea of colonialism play out um, historically was in terms of, um, we, um, you know, of massacres and uh, enslavement. But um, in the contemporary context, there's um, a big focus on how settler colonialism, so the ongoing um, denial to of sorry, denial of self-determination to First Nations people is through um, welfare and child justice systems. So um, removal of um, First Nations children from their um, families and homes uh, and put in out-of-home care, um, incarceration, uh, policing and incarceration of First Nations people. Um, so within that context then, um, if we're talking about court diversion, which is about the criminal justice system, there's this kind of question about, well, how does court diversion relate to um, settler colonialism? A, a um, preliminary 
answer or, or um, initial answer to that might be, well, it doesn't because diversion is about disability and settler colonialism is about um, indigeneity and they're two different things. But that um, obviously overlooks the way in which um, or the empirical reality that um, many First Nations people who are criminalised uh, and are in the criminal justice system are, um, are disabled or do um, have um, mental health diagnoses or um, cognitive impairment diagnoses. Uh, and so um, diversion is used in relation to um, First Nations people appearing um, before the um, hearing before the courts on criminal charges. Um, and so then that then means that we need to think about, well, um, how does court diversion relate to this bigger um, ongoing problem of settler colonialism? And um, it's, as I mentioned before, court diversion is seen as being humane because it's about helping people access services um, that they're considered to need. But um, if we take a step back, we know, for example, um, due to the work of Scott Avery, uh, a First Nations uh, scholar in Australia, that historically um, the very idea of disability uh, in relation to First Nations people is very problematic because disability is a um, relies on a Western kind of epistemic framework. Um, Scott talks about the fact that there, um, there aren't necessarily words to describe disability in um, First Nations cultures. Um, additionally, First Nations people who are disabled, um, that needs to be understood in the context of the disabling impacts of colonialism um, and both historically and in present day. Um, and additionally, that, um, that sorry, so, so the point being that um, there's a more complex understanding of the relationship between disability and indigeneity and settler colonialism. And additionally, historically, um, the, some of the ways in which uh, Indigenous people were denied um, citizenship or denied recognition as full humans and, and citizens um, was through discourses of you know, mental deficiency and incapacity and kind of drawing on those um, negative um, ideas around disability and disability as itself um, kind of dehumanising. So historically, you know, there is this kind of complex relationship between disability, indigeneity and settler colonialism. And so if we bring that into the context of court diversion, we need to kind of unpack this assumption that court diversion is humane for First Nations people appearing before the criminal justice system, um, including because it um, is assuming that the problem rests in the individual, that this problem is some kind of medical issue that um, can be addressed through mental health treatment or services. Um, it also, it, it therefore doesn't um, engage with issues around, the structural issues around you know, the incarceration and criminalisation and policing of First Nations people more broadly, uh, the racism within the criminal justice system, and it doesn't really offer any structural solutions in terms of um, you know, disrupting those structural drivers of criminalisation and incarceration. But more broadly, court diversion doesn't um, further issues around self-determination of 
a collective self-determination of First Nations people as well. So uh, court diversion, um, and lastly, court diversion in assuming that the court and the law is somehow helping and is being humane and helping the person who's being diverted also arguably positions the court um, and the law and the state as the rescuer of the person being diverted. And that kind of tracks onto these long-held um, uh, assumptions in Australia that um, the Western legal system and the Western state is somehow benevolent towards First Nations people, which, which clearly isn't the case. So for all these reasons, court diversion kind of ends up sustaining broader settler colonial um, dynamics, settler colonial violence within the criminal justice system rather than really confronting them or doing anything to disrupt them. And I found that point, uh, it ran throughout the book, um, really interesting because it's something that isn't often visible in scholarship, um, in disability scholarship, I should say, or that I've read anyway, um, this idea of settler colonial violence actually being sustained by, for example, the criminal justice system, in this case, court diversion. And now I want to move on to another point. Um, you've talked about, um, you know, the medical model of disability um, and how court diversion processes actually sustain this sort of outdated model, medical model of disability. One of the key challenges to the medical model comes from the UN Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities, um, which puts forward a social model of disability. But then here you write that it's of limited use in relation to court diversion, in part because it's broadly ambivalent to criminal justice. Can you explain what you mean by um, the CRPD being of limited use in relation to challenging court diversion processes and how it's sort of ambivalent to criminal justice? Yeah, yeah. So um, I guess I should start by saying that the CRPD has um, been a really significant uh, human rights instrument in um, bringing about, you know, really important policy uh, and community shifts in um, the understanding of disability and um, recognising the kind of humanity and citizenship of people with disabilities. So um, the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities um, over the past 13 years or so has um, really done important work in um, acknowledging or forcing recognition of people with disability as being entitled to equality and non-discrimination to dignity and kind of recognition of, of their humanity. Um, I, so to that extent, um, the CRPD is useful uh, in drawing our attention to um, or, or making us more alert to the possibility that criminal justice uh, options for people with disability um, might not be treating them equally to other people. And if we turn to court diversion, um, the articles of the UN Convention that have been particularly useful and have been considered, the main one is Article 14 of the CRPD, which is about the right to liberty and security of the person. And that, um, in the context of Article 14, um, it's been it's been discussed that um, court diversion can be problematic in, because it can enable arbitrary deprivation of liberty. That is, when people with disability are 
subject to detention by reason of their disability, then um, that is considered to violate the right to um, liberty because that decision is not being done through some kind of um, legal process or set of laws that everyone disabled or non-disabled could possibly be subject to detention through. Um, so on that basis, I think that um, the CRPD is useful in highlighting the way in which court diversion, that, that the assumption that court diversion is humane and beneficial because it's recognising someone's disability and using that as a basis to provide access to services and treatment. It's, it's saying, well, actually, no, that's not necessarily good if uh, it's actually enabling detention or coercion in some way. And so additionally, Article 12 of the CRPD, which is about the right to legal capacity, um, is also, uh, also highlights the problematic nature of court diversion because um, Article 12 says, well, um, people with disabilities shouldn't have other people making decisions for them. Their choices about their lives and bodies should be recognised in law and third parties um, such as guardians um, or tribunals or courts shouldn't be able to make decisions about their lives for them. And again, we see in court diversion that this article um, you know, raises questions about uh, court diversion where um, it involves other people making decisions about the kind of treatment someone receives or other people making decisions about where the individual will live. So, um, so I think that those articles of the CRPD are really useful in um, drawing attention to um, the fact that people with disability are treated unequally in terms of um, exposing them to an additional option for detention and coercion that isn't available to be made in relation to non-disabled people. But I guess my concerns around the CRPD relate to um, the kind of structural social justice concerns I have with um, court diversion and, um, and uh, more broadly. So, um, so one limitation with the CRPD is that, or its strength is that it focuses on equality for people with disability and equality along disability ability lines. But it's quite silent on um, other dynamics of oppression or inequality. So um, the CRPD doesn't recognise criminality, for example, as or criminalisation as a dynamic of, of inequality or oppression. Um, it doesn't focus on, it doesn't really recognise indigeneity and, and the kind of structural um, context of settler colonialism or colonialism as impacting on um, equality um, or, or giving rise to structural discrimination. So this is particularly problematic because people um, with disability who um, are appearing in court diversion matters are generally subject to um, other aspects of disadvantage um, and, and structural discrimination, as I mentioned um, in, in when we were opening um, the discussion today. And so, um, so the problem then is, is that the CRPD kind of kicks in at the point when we're looking at, well, what is the effect of a court diversion order on an individual? It has less to say about, well, hang on, how do we actually 
stop people from being criminalized at all? How do we how do we stop or how do we um, how do we kind of make comprehensible within disability human rights um, problems of um, settler colonialism or poverty or um, the uh, kind of compounding impacts of successive failures of services or governments to properly support people with disability and keep them safe from um, violence and discrimination. Uh, additionally, the um, CRPD, uh, I mentioned Article 12 around legal capacity and how that article is really important in drawing attention to the way in which court diversion denies autonomy to people with disability. But that the way in which um, Article 12 understands autonomy or legal capacity is very individualised. So it's the idea, it kind of reflects that liberal legal idea of the individual as making decisions autonomously for their own benefit and related to them and their own lives. But this doesn't really um, have anything to say in terms of another scale or way of understanding autonomy and self-determination, which is um, the Indigenous and First Nations approach, which is around collective self-determination. And so, um, so the CRPD can't really grapple with, well, what are the impacts of court diversion, not simply at the individual level of that control and decision-making over one's life, but in terms of um, sovereignty and um, self-determination at the collective level for um, First Nations people. Uh, and thirdly, um, the CRPD has, you know, has been really um, powerful in terms of drawing attention to the importance of community living and, um, and sorry, community inclusion and independent living. And we, and we see that in Article 19 of the CRPD, um, which basically says that people should have the right to choose where they live and the supports to help them make that choice and live where they choose. Um, and that people should not be living in institutional settings or institution-like settings, such as group homes, where they don't have that control um, over, you know, their living arrangements, uh, privacy, and so on, and they're isolated from the community. Now, that article is really useful in drawing attention to the fact that, well, if someone's diverted into a group home, then that is actually... Um, you know, violating that um, uh, Article 19 right to community living. But um, yes, they're out of the prison, but um, but simply ending up in a group home is not the most empowered place to be. But what I've, I really struggle with in terms of Article 19 is that in other contexts, a prison is understood as an institution. Um, it's kind of in, um, for many, in, in criminology and, and for Cody and scholars, the prison is um, kind of seen as the, um, the epitome of an institution. And yet in the CRPD's framework um, and in terms of the um, UN Disability Committee's um, articulations around Article 19, there's no discussion of the prison in relation to Article 19. It's very much focused on those not non um, criminal justice living arrangements such as the group home and the large-scale um, disability residence. Uh, and indeed, 
the, the main references to prisons are in relation to Article 14 on deprivation of liberty and Article 13 on access to justice. So I guess my concern is that whereas Article 19 is really powerful in calling for deinstitutionalisation and action on by governments on deinstitutionalisation, um, it isn't saying anything on the abolition of the prison or or um, decarceration in the even though those those spaces could easily fit within an understanding of the institution. So I guess that's where my um, concern around the CIPD sits. It's it's recognizing the power of ideas of equality and liberty and legal capacity but recognising that they don't really address the full spectrum of structural issues that court diversion um, gives rise to. And I think that's a really important critique. Um, and this is a good point, I think, to pick up on some of the points you just made about um, Foucauldian uh, scholarship and especially in relation to um, biopower. That was one of the sort of recurring themes. Can you talk a little about court diversion as a mode of biopower through which law uh, debilitates criminal just criminalized disabled people yeah so the concept of biopower um, is related to the work of Michel Foucault um, and he developed this idea across many of his works but particularly in uh, discipline and punish and um, the lecture series society must be defended and um, Foucault proposed that we shouldn't only assume that power operates in a repressive or restrictive register, that it's always about um, uh, stopping people from acting in certain ways, um, some kind of physical um, uh, imposition of force onto another individual. Um, he said that power can also be productive. So instead of stopping people from behaving in a certain way, it can be about subtly guiding individuals' behaviour towards uh, particular ends um, by and doing that by um, structuring their choices and their relationships, the spaces in which they exist and the way in which they perceive themselves. Um, and, and so in this way, power is, is operating because um, it, even at the same time as people's lives are perhaps being enhanced in some way or um, it's done towards particular, um, particular ways of living and behaving that um, that reinforce particular um, social, economic or political norms within society. So um, Foucault said that this idea of biopower, of um, kind of controlling people productively, uh, operated at two interrelated levels. So it operated at the level of the individual through the idea of discipline, so how individuals' um, bodily processes and actions and environments could be um, impacted in ways that um, directed their individual behaviour, but also it oper biopower operates at the level of the population through the idea of regulatory control. So the focus here is on the kind of mass effects of the population. So how could, um, how um, the overall biological processes of the population can be acted upon in order to enable certain outcomes in terms of behaviour or um, uh, life at the level of, um, at a kind of mass level of, of the community at large rather than um, down to specific individuals. Um, and so 
what I really like about Foucault's approach to power is that it um, provides a way in which to challenge um, the humaneness or the, um, or the sorry, the challenge, challenge the assumption that um, court diversion is automatically humane or beneficial because it's providing people with um, uh, opportunities to access services and supports and treatment um, because just because uh, their um, individuals aren't uh, locked up in prison, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that um, they're simply free uh, and that instead if we draw on the idea of biopower, we're looking at the way in which the particular services that people are given access to or the particular options that are made available through case management or through mental health treatment, the particular way in which people are allowed to see themselves um, through engaging with counselling or um, through um, uh, the way in which their lives might be structured in a group home, how all of those uh, aspects of court diversion or the services related to court diversion um, are not opening up a suite of endless possibilities for people with disability for them to choose from, but instead are providing quite a narrow set of um, options for how they can behave and um, how they can live their lives and how they can understand themselves, particularly through this kind of medical prism of a paradigm of disability, um, which then um, enables certain um, outcomes in terms of um, their behaviour, such as um, you know, who they can um, socialise with or um, the possibilities they have for work or recreation and so on. So, um, so biopower is operating in court diversion by shaping the, um, the choices and, and behaviour of people with disability, even when they are um, out in the community rather than locked up in prison. Yeah, and this made perfect sense. Um, I think it sort of, it all builds this picture, you know, um, the sort of the background framing and then there's this critique of the CRPD and then the usefulness of the Foucauldian challenge um, in relation to biopower and how that regulates uh, not just within the criminal justice system but normatively in the community of what, um, as you just said, options that people with disabilities have and then how they're regulated and controlled um, in this coercive way and it's kind of, it's normalised. Um, just to sort of bring all of these points together, at the very end you write that challenging the carcerality of disability not only requires careful interrogation of the relationship between disability and criminality, punishment, risk, therapy and danger, but also interrogation of concepts too often assumed as the endpoint of disability rights, such as inclusion, community support and legal capacity. Essentially, you seem to be challenging not just oppressive laws and processes, such as that of court diversion. But there seems to be a call for a more radical rethinking of the status quo, especially with regard to the carceral system and how it intersects with the mental health system so that it actually legitimates and perpetuates ongoing oppression of disabled individuals. Can you sort of sum up your key findings in your book and make any suggestions as to where we go from here? Yeah, I think so. So I guess where I kind of got get to in the book um, is to recognise that um, the, the concerns that I have with court diversion are part of a bigger problem around um, segregation in the justice system 
around ableist foundational concepts in law, such as um, issues around um, concepts of capacity and, and rationality. Um, and also um, around the, the ways in which um, disability becomes positioned as um, medicalised um, throughout the justice system and how that then enables violence to occur through law and through, you know, fair and just um, processes and through the application of laws rather than, you know, contrary to law, as we often assume violence occurs. It allows violence to occur at the same time as this is kind of masked as um, actually treatment or, um, or uh, empowering people or facilitating their inclusion. So I guess the point I get to is to to um, realise, well, I, I realised through writing this that uh, we really need to, um, we need to make law and the justice systems accountable for um, discrimination, segregation and violence against people with disability. Um, we have a Royal Commission at the moment in Australia in relation to people with disability and their experiences of violence, abuse, neglect and exploitation. And you know, a big focus in that Royal Commission has been, you know, what's happening on the ground in terms of people with disability experiencing discrimination and violence in, you know, workplaces and schools and hospitals and group homes. And that, that is such an important part of the story of um, violence and, and how it's enabled and, and allowed to continue. But another big part of, of that story, which, when, which I think was is yet to be told and um, really interrogated is around, you know, the role of law and lawyers and judges and justice systems in, you know, cr creating the conditions in which discrimination and violation can occur um, and, and then enabling um, these injustices to be shielded from any kind of accountability and responsibility. So, with, and, and I know it's a very legal-centric kind of conclusion, but I guess I'm a lawyer and law academic, so I can't help it. But for me, um, as, a, as a law academic and lawyer, um, I feel that, you know, it's really important to, to keep interrogating that story and really um, asking, you know, where is law present in this violence, even if it's not immediately apparent? You know, what is it doing in the background to allow this violation and injustices to occur? Um, but also to think, you know, about our own practices, such as in the academy in terms of teaching. How can we um, be teaching law students in ways that makes them alert to ableism, that makes them alert to the, to the kind of ethical um, and legal challenges of, um, of, of the role of law in, in injustice um, and violence. Uh, and also thinking about ways in which um, we can think beyond law as well and think about how we can support um, modes of you know, accountability and modes of support for people with disability that aren't dependent on coercion and aren't dependent on the state or the legal system to enable that or facilitate that occurring. So, yeah, to think both within law about, you know, what can we do to um, be more accountable and, and reckon with, with the, the deep set problems and failings of law, but also then, 
yeah, support what's happening in the community um, in terms of the disabled community, but also um, in terms of supporting um, self-determination of um, First Nations people and um, the ways in which they're working um, with um, people with disability within their communities um, that aren't dependent on kind of state-led disability mental health services as well. Yeah, and I think these are really important points just to think about not just what law is, but actually what it does, both um, in our own practice, in the way we teach students, and then, as you say, looking beyond law um, and seeing how it can be more accountable and how we can enable people with disabilities um, to, you know, be accountable and uh, move away from this coercion, um, state coercion of um, disabled bodies. Now, Linda, I've taken up a lot of your time today. Um, I could have asked you so many more questions, but um, it's it's been really great. But just before you go, I just want to ask, um, what are you working on now? Yeah, so I guess I've kind of picked up on a few of the threads that um, I ended um, the book with uh, and now looking at this question of um, shifting from, the, sorry, the question of how is law enabling violence and injustice to ask the question of, well, how can law redress or repair um, violence and injustice? So I'm looking at the question of redress and reparations um, in relation to violence and institutionalisation and, and looking at, um, you know, what role does law and, um, and justice systems, what role do they have in um, setting right or kind of righting the wrongs of um, violence, state, usually state violence? Uh, and then how, how might we move beyond law and engage with um, other practices such as um, sites of conscience and memorialization and community education that um, work outside a kind of conventional framework of um, legal justice as well. And that sounds really interesting because in this book, I think you've um, posed some really interesting challenges to the criminal justice system and court diversion in particular. So I'll be really interested to, to read um, sort of the progress you make in this book in terms of, you know, where we go to from here. So just to sum it all up, I'm Jane Richards and I've been speaking with Dr Linda Steele. Her book is Disability, Criminal Justice and Law, Reconsidering Court Diversion, and it was published by Routledge last year in 2020. Linda, thank you for your time. Thanks, Jane. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.